A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the link to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It was the morning after Christmas and all through the big house. The prisoners were stirring and trying not to grouse. About prison walls so tall and cells so threadbare. Really, it was no wonder St Nicholas never stopped there. The prisoners were all groaning, cramped on their bunks, when they heard on the grapevine that a stranger was amongst. The robber at his basin, the arsonist on his throne, learned startling news of a visitor to their home. From the dreary mess hall there arose such a chatter that all came from their cells to see about this matter. The story, it was true, just as their mates had said. Santa had broken into Pentridge. What? Was he soft in the head? I'm Michael Adams and this is Forgotten Australia. Merry Christmas, season's greetings and thank you all for listening and supporting during what has been a pretty weird year. If you've enjoyed the podcast, I'd love it if you could do me a favour by telling people about the show, particularly this episode in this festive season, and maybe leave a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your downloads. I hope you all have a great Christmas. But Harold James Sheehan probably didn't love Christmas, at least as a child. He was born in late 1923 or early 1924 and he spent almost all of his young life in boys' homes and reform schools. Did Santa visit these institutions? Those in charge probably did try to do something for the kids in their care. Even so, after the depression hit, things were tough all over. By the time he was 17, Harold was out in the world. He had fair hair, blue eyes, stood 5'7 and was of medium build. His nickname was Dusty. Dusty lived in Coburg, just north of Melbourne, in Higginbotham Street. It was named for George Higginbotham, who'd been one of Victoria's most important gentlemen. 
As a newspaper editor and as a politician, he'd advocated for the state education of all children, in part to keep them from crime. But as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, he'd sentenced plenty of young men who'd gone wrong to Pentridge Prison, whose bluestone walls stood just a few hundred yards from where Dusty lived in August of 1941. The Depression was over, but the war was on. Dusty was armed. Granted, it was a toy, but that was okay, because his target wasn't Rommel, German general in North Africa. It was George Banfield, ironmonger of South Melbourne. Fortified by a few drinks, Dusty and a woman he said was his aunt watched the man's shop. When Banfield the ironmonger stepped out, they stepped in. Dusty was at the cash register, trying to break it open, his aunt at the counter keeping watch, when the ironmonger returned. Banfield, a man whose profession made men into metal, told the young rogue to get away from the register and get on the other side of the counter. Dusty's aunt asked Banfield for a tray. Back then, a shilling, 20 pence, was known as a bob. Sixpence was a zack or a tanner. But threepence was a tray, a kind of play on toi from the French. Pardon my French, but Ironmonger Banfield wasn't giving these two three pennies or bloody anything. Dusty yelled, We want money. Banfield pushed and the kid pulled. Pulled out his pistol, that is. Dusty said, Give me some money or you will get some of this. Banfield relented, saying, Wait a minute, I've got some at the back. Banfield stepped into the rear of the premises, and I'm going to go out on a limb here and say it was with a Jimmy Cagney smile that he picked up his double-barreled shotgun. Banfield returned, leveled his boomstick, and told Dusty to make like an egg and beat it. The kid left the shop swearing his young head off. What the auntie did and said wasn't recorded. But Dusty, he went to a wine bar. Sometimes you need to take the edge off. And that's where he was when a couple of constables, who'd been told where to look for him by some dirty rat, found Dusty leaning on a counter. Like a true teenage criminal mastermind, he still had the toy pistol in his trouser pocket. Police claimed he'd said, quote, I did pull the toy pistol out of my pocket, pointed at him, and said, Now you'll give me a tray. In court, though, Dusty denied he'd been trying to open the cash register. But his aunt, he said, had asked for a tray, and he had waved the gun. Admitting his prior convictions, Dusty was sentenced to three months. That was a month for every penny. Every penny he didn't get. Was it the most ridiculous toy gun attempted robbery in Australian history? Again, I'm going out on a bit of a limb here, but I'm going to say, uh-huh. It'd be nice to report that Dusty did his time, joined up and fought at Kokoda or in Sicily, and covered himself in glory. But that wasn't quite his style. In November 1944, as the Allies were pushing their way towards Berlin and driving the Japanese back towards Tokyo, Dusty, by then 21, 5'10", and a textile worker, fancied some textiles of the more finished variety than he worked with. So he broke into a Camberwell store with a mate, and they stole 75 quid worth of clothes. The accomplice, Dirty Rat, got caught and he spilled to the wonderfully named senior detective F.U. Simpson that he'd been, quote, on the job at the shop with Dusty. The cops dusted for Dusty's fingerprints and, voila, found just where he'd placed his paw on the door and the window that he'd smashed. In February 1945, Dusty was punished under the Indeterminate Sentences Act of 1908. This meant, as a habitual but youthful offender, he'd be sent to a reformatory at Beechworth Jail until he was deemed suitable for release. 
indefinite really meant what it said. There was no upper limit to his detention. When he was released, he'd be on parole for six months and liable to go back inside for any new offence. Again, for an indeterminate time. So, these reformatories, they were prison hellholes just under another name. In May of the following year, Thomas Maltby, an independent member of the Legislative Assembly, exposed conditions in such places. Castlemaine, or Castlemaine Reformatory, he said, would have shamed Governor Arthur Philip back in 1788. Paraphrased in the Argus, he said, quote, The atmosphere reeked of Dickens Day. No boy who spent any time in the place could help sinking deeper into degradation. Dusty's new home at Beechworth Reformatory didn't sound much better. Prisoners had to work at digging ditches and so on, but they got no education or training and barely had any recreation now that radios and billiard tables had been removed by the warders. Outside, their exercise yard was tiny and often a quagmire. Pardon my French, but as they used to say, bugger that for a game of soldiers. On the afternoon of Saturday the 12th of April 1947, Dusty and two other young jailbirds went over the wall of that muddy yard and they made tracks. They did get some exercise for the next 24 hours. But then, police found them lying in a drain at Londrigan, seven miles out of Wangaratta. The intrepid and pretty tired trio were hauled to that town's lockup. They were in the papers again two days later because they'd escaped again from under the noses of the boys in blue at Wangaratta Police Station. Somehow, that unlocked the lockup to pop out of the cop shop. Adding to the sense that Wangaratta's finest weren't at the top of their games, this escape wasn't discovered for almost two hours. A town witness said he'd seen Dusty and his mates legging it around quarter past six in the morning. How could this witness tell? Well, they were still wearing their Beechworth prison uniforms and they were barefoot. Clearly, this chap didn't think this was something worth reporting until after he'd had his porridge, toast and tea. Once the news was out, there was a manhunt. Sort of. As the Border Morning Mail put it, quote, Anyone seeing the escapees is asked to report the fact to the nearest police station. Just maybe don't call the Wangaratta police. On the 17th of April, the Argus carried a tantalising titbit. Quote, Late yesterday, it was reported that two of them were seen near Glen Rowan travelling towards the city on a truck. Glen Rowan? Alas, they weren't dressed in iron armour on the back of the lorry, but were instead elsewhere, having gotten themselves suits and boots. Another clothing caper, though this time Dusty had a cause beyond looking flash and earning some cash. But the trio's civvy disguises didn't pull the wool over the eyes of the sharper boys in blue at Moyhew. On the 19th of April, just as that report was being printed in the Argus, they were back in handcuffs. The clothes they were in didn't turn out to be freebies. For committing this larceny, they each got an extra three months, and an extra year apiece for escaping. This, of course, was on top of their indefinite sentences. But did Victoria have a prison that could hold Harold James Sheen, aka Dusty? In September 1949, having been bounced in and out of Pentridge Reformatory, which acted as a kind of hub, he was detained at the French Island Penal Colony in Western Port Bay. French Island is north of Phillip Island, but doesn't have penguins. Instead, since the early 1900s, it had been used to house jailbirds. Think of it as Victoria's budget version of Alcatraz. How did it compare with Beechworth and Castlemaine Reformatories? Well, in April 1949, an escapee who was caught had said in court that he'd rather do 10 years in Pentridge than 5 years on French Island. He said, quote, 
A reformatory is just a place where men go mad and are always attempting to escape. This fellow had been sentenced in 1947 to nine months for vagrancy. Two years later, he'd still been inside at French Island, with no end in sight. All up, he'd spent 11 of the past 12 years in reformatories under the indeterminate sentences system. In all of that time, he said, all he did was dig ditches. No education, no training, next to no recreation. In other words, nothing to reform him. Faced with this, Victoria's chief secretary had to admit that conditions were, quote, admittedly unsatisfactory, and he said there was a plan to improve French Island. Pardon my French, but Dusty had his own bloody plan for French Island, and it didn't involve sticking around to see some changes made. He might not have learned to trade in his time inside, but that wasn't going to stop him. On the night of Tuesday, the 6th of September, 1949, Dusty and four buddies, all who were a little younger, broke out of their concrete cells and broke into a storeroom. Wooden planks? Check. Empty oil drums? Check. Rope? Check. Line them up and lash them together. Now they had a raft and off they paddled. It was five miles across Western Port Bay to the mainland. They weren't missed until muster at six in the morning. This was a big story around Australia. The Newcastle Sun went with the headline, Five Criminals Escape from Jail on Raft. The introduction to the story made it clear they weren't just five crims, but five hardened crims. Of course, there was no mention of how or why they'd become so hardened that they were willing to risk dying to escape their so-called reformatory. Had they survived? Had they drowned? Or had they become a midnight snack for the Great Whites of Western Port Bay? All that day, no one knew. But Dusty and co. were actually hiding in scrub at Bass and waiting until dusk when they could emerge to try to find some tucker and civilian threads. But when they emerged, they were spotted by a police search party. The cops called surrender. The French Island Five thought, never. Police fired shots over their heads, and that changed one man's mind and he put up his hands. But Dusty and the other three bolted there was what the Courier-Mail up in Brisbane called an exciting moonlight chase. The fugitives ran a mile through the bush. The coppers chased, firing more shots. By the silvery glow of the moon, the police spotted three men amid cattle in a clearing near a farmhouse. The officers converged, firing more shots. Dusty and two others gave up. As for the fifth man, they said he'd fallen down somewhere back in the bush. They thought he'd been hit by a bullet. The police had shot a youth whose greatest crime was breaking and entering and escaping a prison hellhole. Lucky for them, that wasn't the case. The officers found the man hiding underneath a hedge nearby. Turned out he'd gone down exhausted and suffering a touch of asthma. Next morning, the French Island Five were in the city court in Melbourne. They were remanded for a week to face escape charges, and they were put under heavy guard by detectives, which, in Dusty's case, was fair enough. The men were convicted in November, and each of them got an extra six months for their 24 hours of freedom. Dusty went back inside Pentridge's reformatory to do his time. When he got out again, in mid to late 1951, it was because it was decided that he'd served his sentence. But if he offended again, he was due to do another three and a half years under the inscrutable indeterminate system. Christmas 1951 looked like it was going to be a bit of a washout. As December rolled by, the weather was terrible. Wet and cold and windy. Then, suddenly, it turned wonderfully warm. Publicans who'd been moaning and groaning had to scramble to order more beer. 
In the last week before Christmas, CUB delivered 872,000 gallons of draft beer, 25% more than any weekly delivery in the company's history. On Christmas Day, after Santa had visited, 2 million Victorians ate, drank and were merry, with the fine weather promising more of the same at the beach on Boxing Day. But for thousands of incarcerated Victorians, this wasn't such a festive time. And that included Dusty's good mates inside Pentridge's reformatory. On Christmas Day, he got on the beers and got out his suitcase. It had worked better than a sack. How about dressing up as Santa? Let's not get carried away. It was Christmas Day, not Bush Week. Woozy from the booze, in the early hours of Boxing Day, while it was still inky dark, Dusty made his way to the Gaffney Street wall of Pentridge in Coburg. He knew the place and he knew its routines. So, no guard in the number 5 watchtower. It was about 3am when he threw up his rope and hook and caught onto a post. Then, he hauled himself 20 feet up and over the bluestone wall. Unseen, he slipped into the reformatory mess hall, which he also knew would be unguarded overnight. Inside, Dusty opened one of the trap doors that the inmates had cut into the floor. He dropped into the crawl space with his suitcase. The secret Santa lay in wait in the secret stash spot until just after 8, when prisoners came in for breakfast. When they did, he opened the trap door and told a man to go and find his two mates, James Sheridan and James Fooster. When they came, Dusty handed up the suitcase, which the men spirited away. Back in their cells, or wherever they went, the Jameses had to be stoked at what Santa had brought them. It was everything two boys inside could want. Three pounds of tobacco, three bottles of whiskey, a bottle of wine and some newspapers and magazines. Booze and smokes and the pages of pics to flick through. What could be better? Returning to the mess hall, the very thankful James Fooster set the empty suitcase down beneath a table. His plan was to stick it under his coat later and burn it in the prison incinerator. For the moment though, James Fooster went down below to catch up with his old mate Dusty. The men hung out for three hours. All Dusty had to do was lay low until sundown when he could go back out the way he came. When Fooster went back up through the trapdoor, the suitcase was gone from the mess hall, or so he'd say. Such a brazen prison break-in must have worn the cockles of even the hardest hearts in Pentridge. But crooks getting wind of a windfall in which they might not share? That had to put noses in the joint right out of joint. While the Grinch stole Christmas, a snitch dobbed Dusty to a warder named Ronald Boyden. Boyden unlocked a door in the boarded part of the wall that enclosed the area underneath the mess hall. He shouted, We know you are there, Dusty. You'd better come out. The Dusty Dusty emerged and Santa was taken to the governor's office where he was interviewed for an hour. It's not too hard to imagine this official's embarrassment and his anger. How would this look? What would people say? It'd be the biggest laugh of the silly season all around Australia. Coburg's finest were called and Santa was taken to the police station. At 3pm, Dusty faced Duffy. That is, Senior Detective H.M. Duffy. This copper had an interesting bit of evidence. Thing was, an hour after the water had nicked St. Nick, the guard had crawled back into the hidey hole and, lo and behold, had made a wonderful discovery. A Christmas miracle. See, Santa had also left a present to warm the hearts of the police. Duffy showed Dusty what had been found. The suitcase. No longer empty. It contained some towels and a spectacles case. 
These weren't even good for stocking stuffers. But the two hacksaw frames? What more could a boy in blue ask for in a case like this? The police version, which the governor and the warder backed up, was at first this. Santa had climbed into Pentridge. He'd gone into the reformatory and he'd left one and a half pounds of tobacco on a table. Then he'd hidden the hidey hole and been busted at 11.30am by Boyden doing a routine check of these compartments. A routine check of secret hiding spots. We'll get to that in a little while. But for the moment, what also didn't make sense was that he'd just leave the tobacco there for whoever should find it. Anyway, after finding Dusty, the water had soon found the suitcase near where he'd been caught, complete with this incriminating evidence. And what's more, a garage just 100 yards from the prison had been broken into on Christmas Day and two hacksaw frames, 18 blades and other property had been stolen to a total value of £90. £90 was a lot of money then, but what Santa had brought into the prison for his mates was priceless. The greatest gift of all, freedom. Anyone who was tempted to think this was just a lark should ponder those hacksaw frames and the missing hacksaw blades, not to mention the missing rope, and imagine the pandemonium of a mass outbreak from Pentridge Prison. All courtesy of this Santa Claus. So, no laughing please. Dusty was charged, as Mackay's Daily Mercury put it, quote, with being a rogue and vagabond, having been found in an enclosed yard without lawful excuse. He'd also be charged with stealing those hacksaw frames, or at least being in possession of them, knowing they were stolen. As you can imagine, press hacks all over Australia had a good time when they got the good tidings of this bloke. Bathurst National Advocate went with the headline, Jail Santa Claus. The Daily Mercury ran it as, Broke into jail to play Santa Claus. I'm guessing there were plenty of toasts raised to Dusty, both inside Pentridge with toilet wine and across Australia with beers at barbecues and in pubs. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. But with the new year came the hangover. On the 3rd of January 1952, Dusty faced Coburg Court. He admitted to breaking into Pentridge to give tobacco to his mates. There was no mention of alcohol, and he said he'd left the rope over the wall. And that didn't make any sense. Surely he would have thought it would have been seen during the day, and the alarm sounded and his escape route cut off. Moving on, Dusty said the last time he'd seen the suitcase in prison had been when he'd handed it up through the trapdoor to his friends. He hadn't brought any hacksaw frames or blades into Pentridge, and nor had he stolen any. Crown witness Warder Boyden said when he found Dusty, he asked, What are you doing here? Of course, Boyden, who was 18 years in this job, knew the man, and he knew he'd been released. Dusty had allegedly replied, I'm in here to help some bastards. What sort of help? That was the intimation from this witness's testimony. Pentridge's governor said Dusty had told him in interview that he'd broken in to give his mates some tobacco. A constable said the accused had told him about putting the tobacco on the table and then hiding. 
Duffy said Dusty had admitted the tobacco was his, but he wouldn't say who it was meant for. Dusty had supposedly said, When I'm caught, I take the rap. But Duffy also said the accused had told him that the hacksaw frames were his, and he tied one of them to his rope to use as a hook. When this was said in court, Dusty shouted, It's a wonder you're not struck dead where you're standing. The magistrate reprimanded him for such an outburst. It probably didn't help Dusty's cause when it came to sentencing. Though he denied doing anything to try and bust anybody out, he'd now be facing charges relating to the hacksaw frames. But as he'd pleaded guilty to breaking in, he was about to face the music for this offence. Speaking to the judge, Dusty said that the Indeterminate Sentences Board would now claim him for breach of parole and he'd serve three and a half years. That was on top of whatever the judge gave him. He said to his honour, quote, I know you have a duty to do, but I ask you for leniency. The judge sentenced him to six months, saying, quote, Precautions are taken to prevent prisoners from escaping from Pentridge, but it is not difficult for a person to get over the wall from the outside. This really seemed to be the judge doing his best to minimise the embarrassment of the governor and other officials at the prison. He continued, A rope and some hacksaw blades have not been accounted for, and officials of Pentridge may be faced with a future break due to your assistance. That, of course, hadn't been proved. The newspapers loved it. The Adelaide News went with the headline, Broken to Jail, Now Sent There. The advocate in Bernie, Tasmania, ran, Jail for Being in Jail. And the Argus, he broke into jail, now he must stay. And another development made headlines all over Australia the next day. This was that waters were reportedly on their toes and tearing apart Pentridge for the rope and the hacksaw blades. Now, Dusty had broken in on Boxing Day. This was reported as happening on the 4th of January. If it was so urgent and pressing, the question had to be, why had it taken them a week to take action? And there was plenty else screwy with the screw story. Why, as they'd said, if they knew about the hidey holes, had they done nothing about them? After all, the story initially had been that Boyden had been doing a regular check on these compartments. Maybe there'd be some answers when Dusty went to trial on the hacksaw charges. He faced court again on the 28th of February 1952. The rope and hacksaw blades still hadn't been found. Nor, on the other hand, had there been a mass escape. Dusty was charged with stealing the hacksaw frames and the blades. He also faced an alternative charge of receiving the frames knowing they were stolen. Dusty testified he'd served seven years in the reformatory section and he knew it well. So he knew how to get in. He said he'd attached a metal hook to his rope to catch part of the guard tower. He'd gone into the hidey hole and he'd waited. He'd passed the suitcase to his mates and a few hours later he'd been caught out by Boyden. This warder said he knew about the secret compartments, as did other warders. When people threw contraband over the prison walls, he said, the prisoners took it into the mess hall and, quote, down it goes. Yet it appeared he hadn't told his superiors about these secret stash spots. The judge told the jury not to take too much notice of that. Warders probably left the spots alone so they'd know where to look for contraband. Rather than tell the boss, quote, they had used it to their advantage, checking what the prisoners used them for. The judge said this case was not an inquiry into Pentridge, and he said a lot of irrelevant evidence had been given regarding the warders. His honour really bent over backwards on this point. The age reported, quote, 
Judge Stafford told a General Sessions jury yesterday that Pentridge Waters might have permitted prisoners to play around with supposedly secret trapdoors so they would not make new ones. If you're of a cynical mind, there might have been other explanations, but we'll just go with the nothing-to-see-here version. Dusty's mates testified that the suitcase had been empty last time they saw it, and they testified to the true generous nature of his Christmas care package. Wine, whiskey, magazines, and tobacco. But no hacksaw frames, no hacksaw blades, and no rope. Au contraire, said Water Boyden. When he found it, the suitcase had contained the hacksaw frames, and these were also identified in the trial by the owner of the garage from which they'd apparently been stolen. Duffy again told the court that Dusty had admitted the hacksaw frames were his, or at least one of them which he'd used as a hook on the end of his rope. Dusty allowed that he might have said something like that as a joke because the whole police case was so ridiculous. He wasn't sure because he admitted he'd had a fair bit to drink before going into Pentridge. Regarding the hacksaws, what was strange was that Dusty would break in and give these to his mates, who'd then leave them in the suitcase and throw the suitcase in the hole in which he'd just been caught. Dusty's defence counsel argued that all his client had been trying to do was make the lives of his friends a little brighter during the festive season. He said the hacksaw frames might have been placed in the suitcase by other prisoners in the confusion of the search following Dusty's discovery. Maybe, maybe not. The Crown Prosecutor closed by saying the jury had to decide who was telling lies. The upstanding policeman Duffy, who declared that Dusty had admitted ownership of the hacksaw frames, or this accused habitual criminal and his two equally criminal mates. In his summing up, the judge told the jury they shouldn't necessarily condemn Dusty because the two crooks were the only people who could back up his story. Of course, the jury was completely welcome to find him guilty if they believed the Crown's case. The jury retired to deliberate. Oh, to have been an eavesdropping elf while they thrashed out the case of Santa over the next five hours. Returning to the court, the foreman read the verdict. It's very doubtful that he said it, but the Argus did in its headline the next day. Quote, Santa, not guilty. Not guilty of the stealing charge, nor of the receiving charge. Even so, Dusty was done and dusted. He had four years to serve for breaking in and for breaking parole. That meant Dusty was inside when a brutal Pentridge exit was planned in 1954. But he wasn't in on this breakout. On the contrary, Dusty had made a bad and mad enemy in James Robert Walker, Australia's most vicious gunman, whose story you can hear in the three-part 2019 episode of the same name. This convicted murderer, who'd managed to get a gun inside Pentridge and smuggle out his epic memoir, planned to kill himself. That was after he had rubbed out four warders and four prisoners who he hated. Dusty was right there on Walker's naughty list. It didn't work out well for Walker, who died by his own hand, having killed no one else, when his plan went totally to hell. Later, it'd be claimed that Walker had hated Dusty because he said Dusty was a standover man. Possibly, but this claim wasn't made at the time that I'm aware of. For all of his sins, Dusty's background didn't include violent crimes and Walker was himself the king of Pentridge, and, as the world would learn from his memoir, a multiple murderer and long-time gangster. 
Recounting what had happened to the Argus in September 1955, a former Pentridge prisoner said that Dusty had been marked by Walker because he'd kept £25 of £75 that had been smuggled in for the man. This jailbird added, quote, Dusty isn't a bad bloke. He broke into jail a couple of Christmas Eves back to play Santa to the boys. He left all sorts of goodies for the boys. His heart's in the right place. Dusty's heart and the rest of him was in a new place in May 1957, and that was Sydney, where he was again breaking in. This time, he was doing the reverse Santa, liberating goods from people's houses. Caught, he pleaded guilty. His defence counsel said that Dusty, who was now 33, had only known eight years of freedom in his whole life. The rest had been spent in boys' homes, reform schools, reformatories and prisons. The judge wasn't about to change that pattern, sentencing him to three years, though he did say if he was well-behaved, a model prisoner, he'd be out in 18 months. I'm not sure when he was released, but three years later, July 1960, Dusty was back out and was back in Victoria. He was back in for more break-ins. This time he was in Castlemaine Jail, sentenced to five and a half years. Now 40 years of age, Dusty was a trustee, working in the prison laundry. The wall was only 14 feet tall there. Not a problem. He and a mate went up and over. Pesky citizens saw them and got on the blower to the jail. The Castlemaine governor and a warder didn't wait to organise a search party. They went out after the men themselves. Dusty was always good at breaking in and breaking out, but he never got the hang of staying at large for very long. This time, he and his mate were caught within a few hours, Dusty and the buddy surrendering without a struggle. They were taken to the Melbourne Watch House to await their court appearance. In the cell, Dusty thought that the lavatory flusher looked pretty useful, so they broke it off and made a hole in the watch house ceiling. But this time, Santa didn't get up through his impromptu chimney before he was discovered. Both men got an extra nine months. Did Harold James Sheen, a.k.a. Dusty, a.k.a. Santa, ever escape again? I don't think so, at least not in Victoria or New South Wales. If he had, it would have made The Age and The Sydney Morning Herald, which are both available online. Dusty would have been eligible for parole around 1965, by which time he would have been 45. What happened to him? I haven't been able to find a trace, not helped by him seeming to have no close relatives or that he'd spent 37 years in some sort of captivity. It wasn't much of a life, and the system that shaped him was horrific, but his claim to fame deserves to be remembered. I do hope in his later life, around this time of year, when the weather got warm, he was able to blow the froth off a beer in a pub and say, Did you know I was the Santa who broke into Pentridge? If anyone knows anything more about Dusty, I'd love to hear from you via the Facebook page Forgotten Oz Podcast. I'll be back with a whole lot of new stories in 2022. If you'd like to help me spread some Forgotten Australia cheer in the new year, you can support the show via patreon.com forward slash Forgotten Australia, and this link is also in your show notes. A big shout out to Chris Fortuyn for supporting the show recently. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. <laughs>